Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette, discuss it, and judge it to decide whether it should be set free <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Hello listeners and welcome to Movie Oubliette, the transcontinental podcast for forgotten fantastical films with me, Conrad, apologising to everyone I meet in Cambridge, UK. And me, Dan, loudly getting drunk at a family barbecue in Melbourne, Australia. (laughs) We'll be focusing on fantastic cinema, sci-fi, horror and fantasy for the most part because we love spaceships with claustrophobic ventilation shafts, houses built on ancient burial grounds and castles with secret underground passageways. We are called the movie Oubliette after all. (laughs) Exactly. Dan, how are you? Oh, very good. Uh, Just kind of recovering from some of the exposure I've been getting lately. (laughs) Um, Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, what have you been up to? Hmm, anything interesting happened this week? Yeah, so I was recently uh, involved in a a documentary, a YouTube original, uh, in collaboration with Hit Record and the rapper Logic. Mm. So yeah, I had to keep that under wraps um, because we uh, they flew all of us out to Los Angeles uh, last year, end of November slash early December, to film the documentary, and so it's it's been tightly sealed in my (laughs) secret vault (laughs) until uh, last Friday when it finally got dropped on YouTube. And yeah, it's been nice. It's a good response to people. And the whole point of the documentary is collaboration. So a lot of love Mm. going around, which is always great. Yes, although I had to say I was quite disturbed at the start of the video where it appeared that Logic and Joe were either human trafficking hit record artists across a border stopping for gas and their mystery van opened up and all of you guys spilled out into the forecourt <laughs> and I thought this looks really dodgy yeah <laughs> it looks uh, like Stockholm syndrome or something <laughs> yeah so that's the the music video that we made because we yeah we collaborated on a song together and we made a music video and in the music video yeah we we are I think yeah I think 20 of us piled into this van but <laughs> I mean, we did do that. I don't think all 20 of us were in the van. I think there were more like maybe 17 of us in there. Right. But it was tight. It was pretty, <laughs> we, we were literally sitting on top of each other. I was holding people up, <laughs> pushed against the walls of the van. Uh, it, was, uh, it was a tight fit. So, um, yeah. <laughs> Well, it was a great video, so and probably an amazing experience. Oh yes, uh, unforgettable, uh, life-changing experience. Definitely feel very inspired after it, and I hope all the uh, the the people that have watched the uh, the documentary and the and the music video feel equally inspired. Mm, I'm sure they will. So, Conrad, anything in the mailbag today? Well, we did have a very interesting response to an Instagram post which showed the restaurant battle from Push. And I was saying that uh, one of Chris Evans's favourite experiences on Push was doing the heroic backwards floor slide whilst firing a gun. Mm. And Neil Jackson, the actor who played Victor, his assailant in that particular fight, replied, my favourite was when I got to smash him against the ceiling. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Wow. Which is really cool. I'm not sure we've had an actor that was in the movie speak to us before. Yeah, that must be a first. That's incredible. So more yeah. actors, please, comment on our yes. posts. <laughs> please do. We love to hear little snippets like that. <laughs> yes. I guess it's time to talk about what movie are we doing today? Well, I shall wander over to the Oubliette and find out. Oh, Oh, there seem to be some padlocks on there this time. Hmm, must have beefed up security. Okay, let's see if I can get them off. Oh, weird. I can't hear the movies. What's down there? It's just like a chasm that goes on forever. Forever. Oh. Hang on, here's a film. 
your hands are in 3D. And back we go. Okay. Right. Our movie this week is the 2009 horror fantasy The Hole. Mm. That we did not get any inspiration from for our podcast. <laughs> our whole show is based around this. <laughs> None at all. This is quite a seminal one for us because it is clearly the inspiration for the movie <laughs> Oubliette itself. So the movie is about a young family who move into a new neighbourhood. It consists of the brothers Dane, played by Chris Masoglia, Lucas, Nathan Gamble, and their mum, played by Terry Polo, and they discover a hole in the basement of their new home. But when they open it, their worst fears come crawling out, and with the help of their spunky neighbour, Julie, they try to get to the bottom of why this is happening, confront their fears, and seal up the hole for good. Mm, maybe that's what we should do with our hole. <laughs> <laughs> do you think so? Maybe if we get lots of really shitty movies in a row, we might, <laughs> we might be pulling those padlocks back out again. So, it's a Joe Dante movie, so... Should be interesting. Yeah, can't wait. Let's go and refresh ourselves and then we can talk about a hole. <laughs> okay, welcome back, listeners. Uh, we are here to talk about The Hole, the 2009 horror fantasy film directed by Joe Dante. Conrad, you had picked this film. Why did you pick it? Well, it's quintessential movie oubliette material, isn't it? Because not only does it have an oubliette in it, <laughs> it's also a film that sort of disappeared, unfortunately. It was Joe Dante's first movie for seven years after a fairly productive period during the 80s and the 90s doing classic movies that we all know and love like Gremlins and Gremlins 2 and Small Soldiers and the Burbs and so on and so forth. And then he sort of disappeared for a while and then he comes back with this movie, The Hole, which is, it's really a family horror movie. It's very much in the tradition of something like Goosebumps or the TV series that Joe Dante was the creative consultant on, Eerie Indiana. I don't know if you ever saw that no i haven't i haven't seen that it only ran for one series mm, okay yeah i 100 percent got the goosebumps vibe it seemed like a very g-rated horror mm. like a horror introducing horror to 10 year olds yes <laughs> or younger yeah it is and, and joe dante's always been very good at creating films that really do capture what it feels like to be 14 obviously sometimes his protagonists are older than that billy and gremlins is older than that but he wasn't meant to be he was meant to be 14 which is why his best friend Corey feldman is, <laughs> is 12 or something Right, And you watch the movie and you just accept it. But actually, when you look back on it, you think, why are these two people friends? This is weird. <laughs> <laughs> but Dante's always been great at capturing what it feels like, that sense of adventure and staying up past your bedtime when you're still able to experience wonderment and horror at things. And I think that the whole really fits into that in terms of him doing a horror movie, but for kids but the film itself just died on its ass. It's such a shame. It was made in 2009. It premiered at the Toronto Film Festival that year and started showing in limited screenings across Europe the following year, mm -hmm. including Cannes and the Venice Film Festival, at the latter of which it won an award for Best 3D. But it didn't get screened in the US until 2012, wow. when even then only in a very limited run and then was just dumped onto Blu-ray. So it's a movie that really has just flown completely under the radar. So I thought it was a good opportunity to pull it out of the oubliette, take a look at it and see whether it deserved a little bit more... Um, attention mm. than it got first time around. It's interesting you uh, said it won an award for 3D because I can see it being an enjoyable film in 3D but I don't think it translates to 2D very well ah. um, because I watched a lot some of the, the making of, of this film and a lot of scenes were deliberately made brighter 
than they should have been. Mm. Like the basement wasn't a dark, dingy basement. It was actually quite well lit (laughs) if you compare that to most horror films. And that is purely because of the 3D effects. Like Mm. dark scenes don't translate well into 3D. You just can't see anything. So they deliberately overlit things. And scenes, especially all the outside scenes and even the scenes in the house were almost glistening. They were so brightly lit. (laughs) Everything was stark, vibrant colours. Everyone looked like they were just golden, like just (laughs) big golden auras around them. Um, And that was purely because of the 3D-ness. I also felt like the camera work kind of suffered because of the 3D as well. Mm. Because the 3D cameras, I I saw some pictures of them. They are massive. Mm. They're like the size of a full-grown seven-foot man. They're huge because they're, they're pretty much two cameras positioned side by side to imitate the human vision Mm. and so they're just huge contraptions that they have to lug around and so a lot of the camera work i felt was a little boring like a lot of stationary camera work and a lot of one shots that didn't really have much movement because they literally couldn't really move Mm. the camera around well there's also the reason that you need to rethink how you move the camera for 3D anyway, because if you do it too quickly and if you wobble the camera around an awful lot, you're going to make everyone sick, Yeah, which is not great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that. I think that was a case with The Hobbit. Mm. There was just so much going on that uh, it was just a blur mm. of action and you just couldn't focus on anything. And it, I think that is the downfall of 3D. Like, you can't really have much action. Mm. So I can understand why they kept kind of the action to a minimum but there wasn't a whole lot of scenes that were just obviously 3d i mean there was one scene where the nails are poured into the hole and it's just like wow this is Mm. definitely just for the 3d effect of nails coming towards the camera (laughs) in slow motion uh, with big whooshing sounds so yeah i think it really suffered because of it and i don't think it's as great of a, a viewing experience in 2D. No. I would have preferred to have watched it in 3D. Yeah, I would love to have seen it in 3D. The big problem they had was Joe Dante convinced the studio to make it in 3D because Avatar had just come out and uh, he said 3D is going to be all the rage. Oh but what he hadn't predicted were 3D conversions, all of these films that would be converted in post from 2D to 3D, which everyone quickly tried to do in the wake of Avatar. So you've got things like Clash of the Titans being converted. Mm -hmm. And the results were mixed. I mean, I'm not a huge 3D advocate myself, so I I can't speak to how good or bad they were. But I think the general feeling was that conversions aren't as good, but they did flood all of the 3D-equipped cinemas with these sometimes Uh substandard conversions, and it meant that the whole just could not get into theatres. There just wasn't room for it. So he kind of went down this alleyway thinking that he was riding a trend, and it was a good thought, but he hadn't predicted that other people would exploit it in sort of a substandard way. Mm. But he wasn't going for that showy 3D. That's the other thing I was going to say. His inspiration was Dial M for Murder, the Hitchcock movie. Right, Okay. Which is very much more about Hitchcock trying to put you in a space and make you feel as though you're participating in a stage play, that you're actually there. So there was an awful lot in terms of arranging things in terms of foreground, background, moving the camera through them so that you feel as though you're experiencing this with the characters, but not quite as much of the gimmicky throwing something straight at the camera stuff that you used to get like in Friday the 13th, part three, which you probably haven't seen. (laughs) I haven't seen, no. Practically everything comes at the camera in that movie, like (laughs) yo-yos, axes, machetes, everything comes straight at your face. And that only happens a couple of times in this movie. There's a scene where Nathan Gamble is lying on his bed throwing a baseball up in the air and he's throwing it directly at the camera. Yes. And Joe Dante said, you just have to do a few of these things because people sort of expect it. But I'm not sure they do in the modern era of 3D. I don't think they're expecting it to be quite as gimmicky as that. Mm, Yeah, I heard that they were more aiming for depth 
depth with 3D rather than sticking straight at your face. Yeah. So, yeah, a, a more immersive experience. Yeah. I mean, I've only ever seen one 3D movie recently, which was I went to see Prometheus in 3D, and I hated it. Okay. <laughs> because to me, it doesn't look three-dimensional. It looks like multiplane animation. Mm. It looks as though everybody is being projected onto a flat piece of cardboard and just set at different depths from you, and I hated it. I <laughs> found it really distracting. Yeah, I, I watched Prometheus as well. I also saw Tron Legacy in 3D as well. Mm. And I've never had that great an experience with 3D. I'm the same as you. I feel it detracts mm. from the cinematic experience. Like I feel like you're actually seeing less in 3D than you would in 2D. Yeah. And so I avoid it at all costs. So the 3D aspect of the whole, probably not its greatest selling point. No, (laughs) I felt like the look of the film suffered because of the things being more brightly lit. It didn't have the menacing, dread-inducing vibe that horrors should have. And I know it was garnered at sort of family audiences and people kind of starting in, in the horror genre. And I give it props for that. But I felt like it was quite dulled down in terms of horror. Like if you compare it to Dante's earlier horrors, like the Gremlins, which mm. was also aimed at a younger audience, that's horrifying. <laughs> but at the same time, still not gruesome enough that kids can't watch it. Mm. And I felt like this film was just a little bit too G-rated for me. There was just so many scenes that could have been more freaky but they weren't. Mm. And I almost felt like this film used a lot of cheap tricks as well. A lot of jump scares. There are a lot of jump scares. They weren't as ridiculous as something like in Halloween H20 that we've covered, which oh, was God. just yeah. just stupidly <laughs> loud scares. At least these scares weren't obnoxious, but there were a lot of them. And I don't like films where the majority of the scares aren't real scares because there were so many fake outs Mm. so many oh it's just your brother standing behind you oh it's just Mm. a guy with a box standing behind you yes oh someone (laughs) taps you on the shoulder it's just it just gets really irritating after a while yeah it's a bit cheap there are ones that i quite like i think dane scaring his little brother by jumping out on him with a clown mask on Mm. it's cheap but at least it introduces lucas's bozophobia as they call it yeah 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 I guess we have to talk about the story in a little bit more detail. So they do find a trapdoor in their basement, their creepy-ass basement, <laughs> open it up, and there's this never-ending hole into nothingness. And no matter what they do, what, what they throw into it, they never hear the bottom. Mm-hmm. They lower a camera into it at one stage, and they, they actually film some pretty weird stuff that they don't really address at all. So there's this weird kind of cloud (laughs) light thing and then an eye that's kind of distorting and they don't talk about that at all. Well, they don't see it because the eye pops up on the screen whilst nobody's looking, which I think is really fun. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was going to be more explored a little bit more, but it wasn't. Mm. And so it turns out that this hole unleashes the worst fears of everyone. Mm. So the little boy Lucas, his worst fear, as you mentioned, is puppet clowns. Dane's worst fear is his biological father who they're trying to get away from because he's in prison for obviously doing very bad things to them and julie the impossibly attractive next door neighbor (laughs) who was fear is i guess the guilt that she felt from a childhood friend that had died at a um, theme park accident and so seeing her as a ghost was her worst fear Mm -hmm. and so all of them kind of dealing with these fears but They see the girl that Julie is afraid of, I guess, or feels guilty of, and and she goes into the hole Mm -hmm. at one point and does this weird slither into it. It's it's a bit strange. Yes. And then they see another, a policeman later on, and I don't really get the policeman. So the policeman was another apparition. He had his whole back of his head was blown out and you could see his brains and everything. And he also goes into a hole. But I didn't really understand the significance of the policeman. Was he... Did the father of the two boys kill a policeman? Is that what's being implied there? Oh, no. The policeman also died during the roller coaster accident. Oh. So 
that's why he was there. Right. Yeah, and that's sort of a direct reference to something that happens in The Sixth Sense, isn't it? There's a kid that turns around and the back of his head's missing and it's a shock. Yeah. So that's a little bit derivative. And he comes out of nowhere for one scene and then disappears again. But it does add that sense of the whole can do anything, Mm. that anything can come out of here. And it's sort of weird and wonderful in very much in the same way as the 80s movie The Gate. I was going to mention that, actually, yes. (laughs) Which also has this thing of kids trying to deal with strange things coming out of this hole, in this case in their back garden. And pretty much any apparition can come out of there, their worst fears, anything. But in this movie, it doesn't feel as though it's sort of dealt with as consistently or even as creatively as it could have been. Yeah, I I found just the goals of the movie a bit strange. Like, uh, So I assumed once they conquered their fears, they didn't see them again is that what happened yeah because with lucas and him sort of overcoming the clown by shoving him through a exhaust fan (laughs) (laughs) and being shredded i guess he overcame it and he never saw the clown again and with julie she kind of came to terms with her friend's death and then i guess she didn't see her again but with dane he was scared of his father but his father ends up sort of luring him into the hole And then he has this big battle with his father and his fears manifested his father in this huge, brute, menacing monster almost. Mm. And I kind of liked that aspect of it. But yeah, yeah, you you said derivative and I kind of felt like a lot of this film was quite derivative. Like I said, it's a really great introduction to horror. There are lots of references, like you said, to The Gate Mm. and and Sixth Sense. Uh, I also found a lot of similarities to like The Ring, a lot of the Japanese horror films where it's just a creepy girl and they did the effect on her. So she kind of like looks a bit stuttery, her image. It's almost like they took out half the frames Mm -hmm. and that's kind of really reminiscent of the disjointed movements of the ring. Mm. And there's creepy Carl, (laughs) the guy that used to live in the house and Dane keeps mispronouncing his name as... Freaky Freddy, I guess, <laughs> reference to Nightmare on Elm Street. Yes. <laughs> so for kids watching this, this is a great introduction to horror. Lots of references mm. and quite dulled down scares. I just couldn't get over how kind of cheesy it was. Like <laughs> a possessed clown. I mean, come on. I've <laughs> seen so many movies with possessed puppets or clowns. I, I just groan a little bit whenever I see one. Really? Oh, I love the clown. The jester clown is creepy. And I love the fact that he's actually there on set as well, because he's not a CGI creation at all. He is actually physically there and being puppeteered, but freestanding. You can sort of see all around him, which is a really creepy effect. And the first time you see him, you never see him move on camera you just see the result of him having moved which is nice and creepy and that gives you the situation where Lucas is trying to explain to his older brother there's this clown puppet that's chasing me around the basement and of course he's not believed Mm. and then eventually when you do get the full-on showdown with the creepy clown and you actually do see him moving his movement is really freaky I find him quite disturbing actually but it's always shot through with this wicked sense of fun that Dan Dante always has ever since Gremlins. I mean, he's kind of become the go-to guy for pint-sized special effects creations terrorising suburban families Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because he did it with Gremlins. He was called in to do it on Small Soldiers and even Looney Tunes to a certain extent. It's sort of the same thing again, but with a different type of special effect. Mm, I mean, I I recently watched Piranha and it's very similar with that as well. Mm. Small, terrorising animals (laughs) killing you. Everyone. I did like the effect of the clown. I thought it was amazingly pulled off because it was four guys controlling a puppet mm-hmm. and it was interacting with the boy. It wasn't some CGI thing where the boy had to act with nothing. So in that respect, it was really great. And also it was all done on green screen, which was I was so surprised because it's really well done. Yeah. But I think what irks me is just the idea of Oh, great. It's a possessed clown puffer. Like, I've seen that in Poltergeist. I've seen that in, you know, all the Chucky movies. 
I don't know. I think it's just a little bit overused for me. And they could have gone with a little bit more creative fears mm. as well. You've got a possessed clown puppet. You have a, a dead girl that's just straight from a Japanese horror. Mm. And you have just a big, bulking, scary man that kind of just looks like the same guy from Halloween. Mm. So I can't get over the, <laughs> the cliches here. <laughs> yeah. Well, the poltergeist thing, I think, is a direct reference because there's even a scene when Lucas first finds the clown on his bed he covers it up with a sheet before he moves it somewhere else because he can't even bear to look at it and that is a direct reference to what Robbie does in Poltergeist with the clown right, although right. in Poltergeist you're kind of wondering why he has the damn thing in the first place because he clearly <laughs> hates it maybe it's Carol Ann's I don't know yeah so there are direct references it does feel as though the whole movie is sort of a celebration of horror cliches put together in a neat little package for mm. 12-year-olds exactly. to enjoy. And there are even some references that are there for an older audience to enjoy because Joe Dante grew up with and loved 50s horror and sci-fi. Lots of his movies are imbued with references to that and a fondness for that, especially something like Matinee, which is set in the era and, and during the Cuban Missile Crisis and focuses on a William Castle-like figure that's sort of a showman putting on these ridiculous monster movies and putting buzzers in people's seats and so on you know it's right. it's full of a love of that sort of era of cinema and in this movie there's even a reference to the hands of orlac which is the abandoned glove factory that bruce stern's creepy carl is living in is called gloves by orlac oh. so that's a reference to 1924's the hands of orlac which was a silent horror film oh. from austria okay. in which a pianist's hands are transplanted after an accident but his the hands he gets are the hands of a murderer wow <laughs> so there are lots of sort of movie references and so on yeah i mean i think of other films more recent films like cabin in the woods mm. is a prime example of just referencing lots and lots of references yeah i respect that i just i guess for me it just felt derivative yeah just lots and lots and lots of things i have seen hundreds of times in a movie in one movie <laughs> <laughs> In terms of the story, see, I remembered it fondly from when it came out, just because it's Joe Dante, he's back again, it's clearly shot through with the same sense of wicked fun mm -hmm. that I always loved about Joe Dante, because for me growing up in the 80s, I was much more of a Joe Dante guy than a Spielberg guy. I was not interested in cuddly E.T. and Close Encounters, oh, they're going to be our friends. I liked the spiny, vicious creatures that posed as Christmas carolers mm. and then sent a woman to her death on her stairlift. Yeah. That, that really appealed to me. I loved Joe Dante. And you can clearly see Joe Dante's sensibilities at war with Spielberg's in that movie because Spielberg produced Gremlins. Uh -huh. So you've got the Mogwai, who's cute as anything, versus these wicked creatures that are having all the fun in the world destroying this small town yes. that looks every bit like the town in It's a Wonderful Life. And it's just wonderful to see the tension between the two. Mm -hmm. And so maybe here in the whole, you've got sort of a tension between Joe Dante's sensibilities and the sort of goosebumps, family friendly sensibility. And it's possibly not quite as fruitful as his earlier outings, but at least it's fun because it's Joe Dante again. Yeah, yeah. But coming back to it, I think on second viewing, there are a few things about it that I find disappointing. In terms of the story, I just cannot figure out what it is that they're supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. So Dane faces his fear of his father, and we need to talk about that a little bit more because that's more complicated than it first seems. Lucas faces up to his fear of clowns. What exactly does Julie face up to? Because I can't figure that whole situation out. So she was on a roller coaster with her friend when she was a small child, and something went wrong and her friend ended up hanging off the edge and Julie was too scared to rescue her or she couldn't hold on to her or, or something. And she fell to her death and it was all her fault or she felt that it was her fault. Mm. Is that what happened? Well, I mean, that's exactly what I got from it. Like, it wasn't really a fear. It was just a feeling of guilt yeah. and 
regret, I guess, but that's not a fear. No. That's not something you conquer. I mean, it's something you get over for sure, mm. but it's not a phobia. And so for me, that fear for Julie was purely just a reason to have a creepy <laughs> girl uh, ghost in this film. <laughs> creepy ghost girl. And yeah. just another kind of cliche of horror films. Yeah. But I just couldn't figure out how this is working because if this is a traumatic experience for her, why is she wearing the other half of the locket that mm. her dead friend gave her? Why is she wearing this daily reminder of this source of guilt? Mm. And how is it resolved? She talks to her for a bit. Uh, you let me go. Oh, sorry, I was afraid. Oh, that's okay then. And that's it? Yeah. I, yeah. I just wasn't very satisfying <laughs> for I me. Know. I know. I mean, even Lucas facing off with the clown and him throwing him into the uh, ventilation fan. That's not really facing your fears, really. It's physically just throwing your fear into a fan. <laughs> the best example of facing fears was Dane. Yes. And facing off with his father because he came to terms with the fact that he wasn't scared of him anymore. And that was visually represented because his father at first was huge. Apparently he was in this full muscle bodysuit. He was massive. Mm. He was a monster. And as Dane was coming to terms with his fear and getting over it, he slowly was reduced to just a normal man. Mm. And Dane managed to overpower him and get over it. And that was very well visually represented mm. as someone actually facing their fear. <laughs> yeah, it's very well depicted, but it doesn't really go as far as I want it to. There is something really interesting going on in the whole, and it's the thing that piqued Joe Dante's interest in the script to begin with, because although it's a Goosebumps horror movie for kids, there is this underlying family trauma going on here. There is a family on the run from a monstrous, abusive father... And there is a pivotal moment at the end of the movie that's just completely flubbed for me because you think that Dane's problem is that his father was abusive to him. But that's not what Dane's problem is. Dane's problem is that on one occasion, when his father was looking for him to give him a beating, he hid and he let his little brother take the beating in his place. And that is what his problem is. So it's not so much fear. He's ashamed mm, of what he did. Okay, sure. Which, again, isn't really explored, not to its fullest potential. That moment when you realise that that's what his problem is should be gut-wrenching. It should be awful when you realise that that's what it is. And it's just not there, partly because of the writing, but partly because of something else that I think we should talk about, which is Chris Masoglia's acting ability. Mm, yeah. Well, I mean, as a whole, I found everyone pretty terrible. I mean, the mother was okay. <laughs> Terry Polo was okay. But I kind of didn't like anyone's acting. Really? Even Nathan Gamble? Because Nathan was in practically everything for a while. Uh, yeah, again, I think it was the whole cliche aspect. Like, he just seemed... Uh, it was like I was looking at Macaulay Culkin <laughs> in a horror film that should have been in the 90s, but it wasn't in the 90s. It was in 2009. And everyone else was dressed like they were in 2009, except Lucas... Who looked like he was from the 90s. <laughs> he does have that sort of Muppet hairstyle, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. He has that almost bowl cut hairstyle and he's always wearing button-up shirts, which kids don't wear in 2009. Especially, I don't know how old he is, eight-year-olds. So I found most of the acting just not really that great. And just character-wise as well, I found them really boring as characters. They were just... <laughs> <laughs> means to an end for me, and I didn't get invested. I didn't feel any chemistry between Dane and Julie, the neighbour. No. I felt like everyone looked way too attractive. <laughs> and even the guy that plays Creepy Carl, Bruce Dern, who was apparently in a lot of Joe Dante movies, but I haven't seen them all. Mm. I've only seen three of them. <laughs> even him, his character just felt under 
developed. Yes. He was the creepy guy, but he wasn't really creepy enough. Mm. And his lines weren't that impactful. I found him to be a, just a straight ripoff of every single character that Christopher Lloyd has ever played. <laughs> I really just expected him to take off his glasses and just say, you didn't open the trap door, did you? Did you look in the hole? Like, I just expected, oh yeah, this is just going to be Dot from Back to the Future. I also wanted to mention uh, there's a cameo as well So the pizza guy The pizza delivery guy Is played by actor Dick Miller Who apparently is in Every one of Joe Dante's movies He is Yeah But it's the most Obvious cameo You may as well have Just stuck Stan Lee there And be like Okay great No one delivers pizza When they look like They're 65 years old It's, it's just not It's not a thing you see no. I'm sure they could have found a better role for him than that, to I know, be honest. exactly. But, I mean, he, he was largely retired at the time. Sadly, Dick Miller recently just passed. Oh. Yeah, January the 30th, he passed at the age of 90. And he was a lovely guy. Right. And, yes, was in every single one of Joe Dante's movie, probably most famously in Gremlins as Mr. Futterman. Ah. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I don't know. I got really frustrated with the characters in the acting. Yeah, I mean, I actually don't mind. I think the rest of the actors are fine and they're just underserved by the writing. But I think Christmas Oglier falls into a special category for me, which is he's not got great writing to deal with, but also he is terribly wooden. He is. He Very is. handsome young man, but he doesn't really have an on-screen presence. And the relationship with his brother, which should be key, if you had a setup whereby... This is my pitch for a different version of this movie, mm -hmm. whereby Lucas is frightened of something, not necessarily a clown doll, but something. And you can't figure out what that thing represents. You just know that he's scared of it. And then at some point you figure out that that thing is directly related to the time his father gave him a beating, something to do with what his dad was wearing or something that he beat him with or whatever it was. But you realise that that's what that is. So he defeats that thing, whatever it is, but you realise that it all stems from this beating from the father. And all the way through the movie, Dane is incredibly protective of him and seems to be just too overprotective almost and you can't figure out why and then you get to this moment where you find out that he let his brother take a beating and that's where all of this stems from and you had a main character actor who has the chops of somebody like Dylan Minnette, I don't know if you've seen him. He was actually in the Goosebumps movie. He's in that um, 13 Reasons Why series on Netflix. Uh -huh. Okay. He was in Don't Breathe as well, if you've seen that. That's a fantastic movie. I have not. <laughs> ah, he's a, he is a fantastic young actor and he's able to emotionally to go to places that are really raw. And if you had somebody like that being faced down by this spectre of their father saying, you let your little brother take a beating instead of you, you're a coward, it would have been emotionally devastating and deeply disturbing mm. and all tied together really well but it's not <laughs> no <laughs> so that's my fantasy of what the whole would have been yeah but it's not that <laughs> now it's time for random trivia so purveyor of fine trivia what do you have for us today oh uh, i have two bits of kind of short trivia. So the first bit of trivia I have is to do with the puppet clown that mm. Lucas is terrified with. So they have a big battle, and that scene took four days to film, apparently. Wow. I know. It only lasts for about two minutes, but um, <laughs> four days. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a lot of green yeah. screen, I think, and, and just trying to make it look convincing that he's actually battling mm. a clown as opposed to four men manning this tiny little puppet. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the reasons why they probably do do a lot of stuff in CGI because it means that you might think that it's quicker than doing things practically on set or at least at least you don't have to have a crew of 100 people trying to work on this thing for four days mm. <laughs> rather than just one guy in front of a computer for a month. But I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, my other piece of trivia uh, is to do with the girl, uh, Annie Smith. She is the, the apparition, the ghost that haunts Julie. And that character was actually played by a male actor, Canadian 
Quinn Lord. Yes. There you go. Yes. And Joe Dante was actually inspired by a 1966 Mario Bava movie, Kill Baby Kill, right. which featured a creepy ghost girl. And in that movie, the, the girl was uh, actually played by a boy and he found it a really creepy image. There was just something about it that was subtly disturbing. So mm. he borrowed the idea from there. <laughs> I The only other movie I can think of a male actor playing a female ghost is um, Insidious. Uh, I think the woman in black is actually a man. Yes. And Quinn Lord, of course, also played the pumpkin-headed Sam in Trick or Treat, oh, if you've seen that movie. I have not seen that. I seem to have seen zero movies that you talk about. <laughs> <laughs> it's really... It was scoring low today. <laughs> yeah, he was eight when he played Sam in the classic Halloween anthology movie Trick or Treat. Uh-huh, okay. He's 20 now. <laughs> <laughs> and that's our trivia. Yes. Let's talk about the score for this film. Yes. So this was a big moment for Joe Dante because he'd always worked almost exclusively with Jerry Goldsmith Mm -hmm. ever since Twilight Zone, the movie, where Jerry scored the whole movie, so he scored Joe Dante's segment of that. They'd worked on every single film ever since then, so Gremlins, Explorers, Inner Space, The Burbs, Matinee... Mm. And their creative sensibilities, especially their devilish sense of humour, really meshed. And that's probably one of the reasons why I gravitate towards Jerry Goldsmith over John Williams, because John Williams is the Steven Spielberg, heartfelt, gushy, saccharine E.T. music, which I love. I do love it. Right, right. Jerry Goldsmith adds this extra zing with things as as wickedly exciting as the Gremlins rag, for example. Mm -hmm. So they worked on everything together right up until Looney Tunes back in action. And then seven years later, when Joe Dante comes to direct The Hole, Jerry is sadly no longer with us. Mm. So the big question was, who is Joe Dante going to pick to replace him? I mean, nobody could ever replace Jerry Goldsmith, but who does Joe Dante go for? And the person he picked was Guillermo del Toro collaborator Javier Navarrete, which seems like a really interesting choice at first glance because he worked on The Devil's Backbone and Pan's Labyrinth, both incredible scores, both for films about ghostly, otherworldly things happening to children, to young people. So you can see... The parallels, sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But the, the end result, though, I'm not sure it's as great as I was expecting it to be. Most of the choices in it seem fairly obvious. I mean, you have a solo female vocal for a creepy ghosty girl and you have a descending three-note motif for the whole itself because the whole goes down, I suppose. And for the Jester Clown stuff, you have this slashy string, Bernard Hermony, wicked sense of fun music. But certainly in terms of matching Jerry Goldsmith's creativity and Joe Dante's sensibility, I'm not sure Javier Navarrete really nailed it. But it's not bad. Yeah, I 100% agree. It's not bad, but it's not good Mm. either. I felt it was very expected. Mm. All the scenes with music cues, I expected, okay, here's some low strings and lo and behold, low strings and then you've got okay i want a motif on a harp and then here we go a motif on a harp (laughs) even in the pool scene it's like oh let's put some uh disjointed atonal piano okay here we go here's some (laughs) disjointed atonal piano it was just so uh, i hate to use it the word again but derivative like it just felt like every horror movie i've ever heard the score put into this movie and it wasn't inspiring but it wasn't bad as well Mm. it wasn't terrible like it was very well arranged score it was well written there were motifs it's great instrumentation but it wasn't anything i would remember Mm. ever no i couldn't um hum any of it to you now having watched it twice recently (laughs) and it feels almost like he watched the film and just wasn't inspired by it no no not at all like the rest of the movie, it just kind of ticks the boxes, mm. but it doesn't push boundaries. It's not creative. It's just filling the space that needs to be filled. Yes, <laughs> adequately. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just like you say with the Dick Miller cameo. Dick Miller is in every one of Joe Dante's movies and he just sort of shows up and says, well, pff, here's the Dick Miller cameo. I know. I mean, he, he 
that's pretty much what the scene was. Yeah. He, he's at the door, they take the pizza, and he just goes, <laughs> and then <laughs> it's end of scene. <laughs> like, yeah. It all feels pretty perfunctory, doesn't it? So it's clearly trying to recapture something, mm. but it's too obvious that it's trying to recapture something. Yeah. And it's very much the same with the music. It's we're going to hire Javier Navarrete and he's going to do the same thing for this movie that he did for Pan's Labyrinth. Well, of course he can't. Mm. Okay, to change subject completely, I did like quite a bit of the production design, especially the hole. Mm. So he's lured into the hole Dane to go rescue his brother Lucas and he lands in this really strange surreal world where the buildings are impossibly tall you can see the Brooklyn Bridge in the distance and it's just monstrous just this towering edifice uh, and then when he goes into the apartment uh, that his brother is trapped in all the picture frames on the wall are, are all stretched out they're not perfect rectangles they're all weird trapezoids and and all the photos in the frames are all distorted and odd looking and then he goes into the lounge and all all the furniture are all the wrong sizes things are way too big than they should be the wardrobe is massive when he walks in and the, the clothes hanger is like the size of a man yes and i really liked it it kind of reminded me a little bit of, of bill and ted right bill and ted too when they die and they go into like purgatory <laughs> slash hell and everything's like weird perspectives and lots of dutch tilts uh, with the camera work and I don't know. It also, also reminded me of some of uh, Michelle Gondry's mm. stuff that he's done, especially his music video stuff. It did actually remind me a lot of a, like a 90s music video, mm. just walking around these really strange sets. And I, I thought it was quite cool, although it kind of looked really out of place compared to the rest of the film because yeah. they did use CGI in the rest of the film, but this scene was a lot more practical mm. sets rather than relying on CGI. Yeah. For me, it reminds me very much of his segment from The Twilight Zone. Oh, okay. It's a Good Life, which has a family who are being terrorised by an omnipotent child who's turned their home into like a, a twisted cartoon reality that they're forced to live their life out in and they're all sort of hostages to this maniacal child who could kill them at a whim. That's a way of visualising what that kind of reality would be like. Exactly. I'm not sure what it's doing here other than making it scary. Certainly everything being too big speaks to the fact that he was younger when he was terrorised by his father mm. and that's the realisation he comes to. You only look big because I was small and that's when he starts shrinking. Mm. But other than that, I'm not quite sure why it's there, except that he's in the hole. It's the big finale. So we're visualising the world inside the hole as this distorted reality that's exciting to explore in three dimensions, perhaps. But mm. that final confrontation, there is a scene in it where the father pulls him out of a closet and throws him across the room and he looms over him. And he says, I knew I'd find you hiding in that same closet whilst unbuckling his belt. Mm -hmm. Now, sometimes, as Freud says, a cigar is just a cigar, but I'm looking at that <laughs> scene and thinking, this is hinting at something more than physical abuse. Mm, okay. And perhaps even that this could explain the lack of chemistry between Dane and Julie. <laughs> right. <laughs> there's no real tension there romantically they never kiss he doesn't rescue her there's no, no male gaze towards her body which i suppose is quite nice in a way but nothing from her in reverse either no. they're just sort of friends so i just feel as though there's potential here for a lot more to be going on but i know that i'm sort of projecting that into it and it's not actually there <laughs> yeah i really don't think it's there <laughs> no it's not in this case a cigar is just a cigar <laughs> i think you're right <laughs> But yes, the finale of the movie is visually very creative. I just wish the rest of the movie were as creative. Yeah, I, I almost felt like I wish they'd gone into the hole sooner. Because mm. it's pretty much the finale of the film. Maybe if they'd gone into the hole for other reasons throughout the film... I like films that go into other worlds. Mm. So yeah. <laughs> that finale for me was very exciting. 
but it was the finale of the film. Mm. I mean, the theme and story of the film just felt like an episode mm. of a TV show like Twilight Zone yes. or Goosebumps yeah. or even modern shows like Supernatural mm. or Buffy the Vampire Slayer or something like that. It yeah. just it felt too small of a story and theme to kind of carry for an entire movie. So they could have done the entire movie in a 40 50 minute episode easily mm. but they stretched it out and i don't think it stretches out well <laughs> <laughs> no and particularly if you look at julie's story which doesn't even make a great deal of emotional sense when you start picking at it you could excise all of that and the film would lose nothing mm. this is why i think if you'd really develop the relationship between the two brothers and had this deep dark secret at the center of it all it would have been amazing. Yes. If they kept being dragged into the hole and seeing distorted reminiscences of their past, I think, it, yeah, it could have been really disturbing. Oh, it could have been amazing. And poignant. Exactly, exactly. Yes. But it's not that movie. No. <laughs> Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Mobley Awards. Okay, listeners, I know you've all been waiting for your favourite time of the podcast, the Moobly Awards, where we nominate a bunch of our favourite things in a number of completely useless categories. So, we always start with favourite quote. Conrad, what was yours? <laughs> well, I'm kind of pleased to go first because I think there's probably only one great quote in this movie. And it is when Lucas, having just met the impossibly beautiful girl next door, says to her, Hey, do you want to come and look at our hole? <laughs> oh, it's so good. That's exactly the one I had as well. Amazing. Yeah, so our comeback is pretty good as well, which is, is that what you do for fun in Brooklyn and play with your holes? <laughs> Nominations for hair and costume. Dan, did you have a favourite piece of wardrobe in this movie? I had none, none. There was nothing, no. nothing inspiring. <laughs> it was just all very generic. It was it was 2000s-esque clothes that nothing stood out. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought we should give props to Christmas Oglia's Zac Efron in high school musical oh, hairstyle. Yes. You know, that sort of layered round top with side-swept bangs and finger-dried bits poking out at the bottom. I right. just thought, yes, stock Disney Channel <laughs> naughties teenager that you can't help but love on site, I suppose. Sure, sure. <laughs> Interestingly, Chris did play Zach's younger brother in Charlie St. Cloud oh. in 2010, but his role was cut. Oh, <laughs> damn. <laughs> can't imagine why. <laughs> All right, so next category, most, uh, I guess, naughties moment. Well, actually, his hair is my <laughs> nomination for most <laughs> naughties moment. I think that hairstyle was just the naughties, and then we moved on. <laughs> Did you pick out something else? I mean, there were the flip phones, uh, incredibly naughties, uh, yes, but also yeah. one scene in particular. So they're lowering down, for some strange reason, a plushy toy, a soft toy of... South Park's Cartman and yes, it, and the toy yes. has been activated so it's reciting all the lines from South Park and it's just I can't remember the last <laughs> time someone even talked about South Park. Is it even going still? Who watches it? I think I think it is. It's like the Simpson, it just won't die. Right. <laughs> it definitely had its peak in the 2000s and never again. Uh, how about a favourite scene? What's your nomination for favourite scene? I mean, I, 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 I mentioned it before, but the finale scene, mm. like when he goes into the hole and everything's all distorted and stretched out and crazy angles. Oh, just great production design, uh, very reminiscent of Bill and Ted. Uh, I guess <laughs> I have a <laughs> deep love for Bill and Ted. And I just, I, I like... <laughs> crazy set designs and I like messing with perspective um, like how Michelle Gondry does in Eternal Sunshine of a Spotless Mind and 
um, all of his Björk videos that he does. Um, it's just very cool to see practical sets again. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For me, it would have to be Lucas doing battle with the Jester Clown in the basement. I oh, do love okay. it. I think it's very creepy. I think it's exciting. I do actually think it's pretty well lit, that scene, but maybe it looked better on my disc than it did on yours. But I thought that one was well choreographed. And I thought Nathan Gamble did a pretty great job of reacting to the puppet and looking freaked out and scared of it and then overcoming it. I thought he did a good job. And I just love the fact that it's physically there, that it's being puppeteered and they've just green screened the puppeteers and the rods out. So this thing is sort of moving impossibly completely mm. freestanding and it's yeah i find it really creepy the way it moves and the sound of its voice as well i think is really cool i mean i would agree and i have actually got that scene as my favorite special effect for this film mm, yeah mine too i thought originally that it was stop motion i thought oh it mm. must be stop motion what's well, obviously a practical effect and then finding out that it was puppeteered on a green screen i was mm. amazed that they pulled it off so convincingly how about um clean cliches <laughs> i suspect we could be here for some time <laughs> uh, yeah i mean i've got i've i've written down in my notes the entire film is a cliche creepy basement you've got jump scares galore especially fake outs uh you've got that scene where julie looks under the bed and it's just like oh god really you have to have the look, un <laughs> look under the bed scene and then followed by a jump scare that is not a real scare either. It's just her music turning mm. on. Oh, it's ridiculous. And obviously mm. the creepy clown, uh, the creepy ghost girl. Even the start of the movie, a family moves into a new house and discovers something <laughs> creepy in their basement. Come on. Isn't that the start of every single horror ghost movie ever made? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah, I think so. <laughs> I had Crazy Old Man as the Harbinger of ah, Doom. Yes. It started, I think, with Crazy Ralph in Friday the 13th and even goes on to Kevin McCarthy in Invasion of the Body Snatchers in 1978 where he sort of reprised his character from the 50s Invasion of the Body Snatchers and just turned up as Crazy Old Man in the street. <laughs> it's a time-honoured tradition to have creepy old guy telling you don't look in the hole i know <laughs> exactly <laughs> the other cliche i spotted that perhaps you haven't mentioned so far in your many catalogues <laughs> of cliches is assembling a premonition or a clue from a collage of disturbing oh, sketches yes 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 <laughs> yes, yes yes yeah so it's a scene where dane has recovered his sketchbook from Creepy Carl and it's just full of these nonsense sketches and then he finds out they all match up into this giant picture that no one could possibly have drawn um, or even... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Bruce Stern is just special, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. <laughs> all right, next category is favourite sound effect. Did you have one, Conrad? Uh, I think we need to celebrate the fact that all the sounds surrounding the hole are ridiculous. <laughs> My favourite is when an unseen force is pushing out the nails that Dane has used to seal the trapdoor shut. And when the nails actually plop out, the sound they make is like a crowbar being dropped from a skyscraper. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Ridiculously overblown. Yes, yes. Um, that's probably my favourite. It did make me laugh. Though. Yes, I laughed at that as well. And there's another similar scene in the hole in the final showdown between Dane and his father. And his father takes off his belt, it unfurls, and the buckle hits the floor. And it sounds like a car has just been dropped from a hundred <laughs> stories up. It's, it's just way too loud and... It's an explosion of metal hitting metal. <laughs> <laughs> and also, I mean, for in the next category, funniest scene, I would say those two scenes, the nail and the belt buckle. <laughs> I was just laughing hysterically because there was there's no way that those things would make that sound. It's ridiculous. <laughs> like they could drop a piece of paper and then have explosions. I mean, it was that ridiculous. Yeah. 
Did you have a funniest scene? Uh, I did, but I was sort of laughing with the movie rather than at the movie uh-huh. with mine. I, it's the scene where, and this is something we didn't talk about, but I think the aspect of relationships that the movie gets right is the two brothers and the huge age difference between them. And the scene where the little brother is humiliating his older brother because he won't come out and play ball with him. So he goes to talk to the impossibly beautiful girl next door. Mm-hmm. And is it's just humiliating for his older brother who's trying to hide in his bedroom and, and being caught peeking out the window. <laughs> and that just rang so true for me because I, I have a brother who is six years older than me. And yes, that is the sort of thing that I would do. <laughs> and there's nothing worse I can imagine for a 17-year-old older brother than your 10-year-old brother wandering up to people and... It's not good. Mm, mm. It was a, it was almost cringy scene because I I could mm. definitely feel the embarrassment of the older brother. <laughs> I thought they played that actually pretty well, but I think that's mostly because um, Nathan Gamble is is doing all the heavy lifting mm, there, and right. Christmas Oglia has just got to sort of duck behind a window <laughs> ledge. Ah, yes, agreed. And that is our movie awards. It is. So, listeners, it's that moment you've all been waiting for, with bated breath, I'm sure. It's the final verdict. You hadn't seen this movie before. Dan, do you think the hole should be released from the hole that we have in our basement (laughs) and for you to come to terms with it and let it go free to wander among the populace? Or do you think it should be thrown back in and nailed shut and have lots of padlocks slammed on top Mm. of it? Well... Yeah, I think the hole should be put back in the hole, really. <laughs> oh, I was expecting you to say that. Yeah, I mean, I know you picked it and I feel really bad, but it was just overall just so derivative and cheesy and cliche for a horror fan. Me being mm. the entirely the wrong audience for this film. As a young boy or, or girl um, wanting to be introduced to the horror genre, this is a perfect film. Mm. And with chock full of references, some very low-key scares, and not a huge amount of consequences. No one dies. And yeah, it's a great <laughs> introduction to horror if you're a young person wanting to get into it. But I think a lot of the fact that this film doesn't work is because it was filmed as a 3D film and it does not Mm. translate as a 2D film visually and even plot-wise, there wasn't a lot going for it um, for me. (laughs) So I don't know what else to say. (laughs) Um, Conrad, what what was your verdict? Well, I picked this movie because I had fond memories of it and I think it was very much of the rose-tinted glasses uh, variety. I think I was just thrilled to see Joe Dante back directing a movie again and there were numerous things in there that made me feel all sort of cosy. Oh, he's back, it's gremlins, it's little things running around the floor frightening children. Mm-hmm. And for those scenes where that sort of thing is happening, I think it's great. I think the jester cloud and even though the clown itself is a bit of a cliche, I think that sequence reminds you of the greatness that Joe Dante achieved in former years. Mm-hmm. But in, I think in all good conscience, the end result is does not add up to the sum of its many recycled parts. And if only it had a lead actor who was able to engage you much more in the Mm -hmm. drama, make you feel for the two brothers and make you feel for the predicament that they're in and the the horrible spectre of their father that looms over the whole thing. It really should have been much more than it actually was in the final analysis. I think, as I've said, I wanted it to be a different movie. I remembered it as being a different movie. I watched it back and it's not that movie. And on the strength of what it is, I don't think I could recommend it to anybody. No. I'm afraid. No. 
I no. would not recommend this film <laughs> unless you are an eight-year-old. <laughs> so uh, by yeah. all means. <laughs> yeah, so this film, I'm afraid the whole, the inspiration for the movie Oubliette, I'm afraid, has not passed no. the test and won't leave the movie Oubliette. It's got to go back in there. Oh, my God, what a shame as well. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't bode well does it no 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 all right i shall send it back to the depths in you go whoa that was louder than normal (laughs) indeed good grief there's an amp on that thing (laughs) i think there was a draft i think that's what it was Oh, it's gone, the poor hole. So I guess we ought to think about what we're going to pull out of the oubliette next. Dan, do you have an idea for us? Mm, Well, I have a film that I have wanted to watch for a number of years, and it's starring an actor that I dearly love as well. So it is the 1989 thriller, Dead Calm. Starring one of my favourite actors, Sam Neill, who I feel does not get enough credit for the roles he plays. No. He chooses very different roles, and I, I think he's very underrated. He is, yeah. He's been the Antichrist. He's been all sorts of things. Well, this this <laughs> film also stars Nicole Kidman and Billy mm. Zane in another ocean movie. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, yeah, with sinking ships again. So (laughs) he doesn't have the best of luck with boats, does he, Billy Zane? No, no. And it's directed also by Philip Noyce, who I don't know who that is. But yes, very keen to check this out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a pretty accomplished cast and it's an Australian movie. Ah, okay. With cinematography by the great Dean Semler, who we've crossed paths with before on Razorback. Ah, another Mm. film from the country I currently reside in. Indeed, yes. So, should be fun. Yes, and if you listeners want to talk to us or discuss our verdict for The Hole, did The Hole deserve to be thrown back in the hole? Uh, (laughs) You can find us on all social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you'd like to email us, we're at movie.oubliette at gmail.com because I was stupid when I set up the account. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the dot's very important But we would love to hear from you We love it whenever anybody gives us feedback On the show or which films We should cover in future It's all good stuff And also if you are a new listener as well Please give us a rating and review On iTunes or Whatever other podcast platform you are using mm, We need those ratings Yes, 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 yes Thanks for joining us Look out for holes in your basement and Goodbye for now See you next Next time. We review the films others tend to forget. Come with us and don't come up the movie Juliet. You got a gateway to hell under your house, and that is really cool. <laughs>